Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 12th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawmakers in the state house are expected to introduce legislation that could restore the voting rights of Mississippians convicted of certain felonies. Then Mardi Gras celebrations come with hundreds of years of tradition. One new group in New Orleans is showing how those traditions are evolving. Plus, a gospel documentary airing tonight on MPB shares how Mississippi helped shape the genre. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Lawmakers in the state House of Representatives are expected to introduce legislation that would restore the voting rights of Mississippians convicted of certain felonies. There are 22 felony convictions that result in lifetime disenfranchisement in Mississippi. They vary widely in severity, with convictions including crimes such as timber theft, carjacking, receiving stolen property, and murder. No bill has been filed at this time, but a Republican lawmaker says he envisions a bill to restore voting rights immediately after a person has completed their sentence and paid any relating fees. The measure is expected to have bipartisan support once it's filed. Several lawsuits are underway that challenge the existing law about disenfranchising crimes, alleging that taking voting rights away for life is an overreach. Paloma Wu is deputy director of impact litigation at the Mississippi Center for Justice. She tells our Will Stribling the potential bill would be great for helping formerly incarcerated Mississippians, but she wants the state to move away from lifetime voting bans altogether. The legislature moving on this issue is the best of all possible outcomes. There are two cases that are still pending in the federal court system, um, one which seeks to uh, strike down all crimes um, except for murder and rape that take away a person's um, right to vote for life. And the other one seeks to um, take away the lifetime um, ban on voting as cruel and unusual punishment and also is challenging um, a re- uh, the way that people can uh, get re-enfranchised. So, those uh, cases, one um, from SPLC and one from Mississippi Center for Justice, are both pending. But Mississippi legislators taking it upon themselves to address you know, this issue that the, the vast majority of Mississippians um, believe should be addressed um, is the best of all possible scenarios because the courts are really just, you know, backup if we can't solve our own problems. But I, I, I believe the best thing is if, if we take this into our own hands. For folks that just aren't aware of the history here, can you speak a bit on the 
the racist roots of these laws, uh, the impact that they have had throughout our history in modern times, and then the state's attempts to rehabilitate the, the image of those laws since the, um, their origins were, were challenged. So after the Civil War, the uh, state of Mississippi was given the opportunity to come back into the Union so long as it would get a new constitution and uh, make sure not to take the right to vote away from anybody on the basis of race. And what happened was they called the 1890 Constitutional Convention, told everybody that they were calling the convention to try to target black voters in all ways they could think of other than to uh, mention their race. So this is a couple of examples. The elected president of the convention was um, Judge uh, Calhoun. He was former lieutenant colonel of the Confederate Army. And he started out the convention with saying, quote, the ballot system must be so arranged as to affect one object. And that was that white people would be in the ascendancy. Uh, Tallahatchie County delegate explained, quote, black voters mind at the ballot box at any election by taking the white vote unaware, overthrow the present civil government, and to prevent such a danger, to guard against such a calamity, the delegates must alter the basis of suffrage as will secure to the white race a fixed and permanent majority. We can, if we will, afford a safe certain and permanent white supremacy in our state. And a Bolivar County delegate announced, quote, it is the manifest intention of this convention to secure to the state of Mississippi white supremacy. So we didn't make up any of these quotes. They're um, they're, uh, in the newspapers um, quoting the delegates. There is no question that in this state, the powers of government are politically and constitutionally lodged in the, and I'm replacing the word, black race, and that the paramount object of this convention is to transfer it to, invest it in the white race. So, um, at this point, leading up to the convention, 67% of eligible black Mississippians are registered to vote. The 1890 convention is so extraordinarily effective at um, wiping out uh, black registered voters that after the 1890 constitution is, is passed, two years, within two years, uh, the number of black eligible Mississippians registered to vote goes from 67% to 6%. Um, everybody, including the courts, agree that um, the, the Section um, 241 of the Constitution that contains the ban um, uh, did have racist origins, including the Mississippi Supreme Court announced the same. Um, it's after that, the reason, you know, when people challenge it, we're challenging it different um, legal theories based on whether you can retroactively cleanse the racist taint, is what they call it, by um, adding murder and rape later on. But was the Constitution of 1890 uh, meant to disenfranchise black people and did it? Yes. And um, have we ever gotten back to where we used to be with regards to, um, you know, racial equity and voting? We have not. Uh, Representative Wallace said that he envisions this bill looking like he's only looking at restore, uh, restoring uh, voting rights for people convicted of nonviolent felonies. Um, and then it won't be all nonviolent felonies. And he said it would, the way that it would work is that they would um, have their voting rights restored immediately after they completed their sentences. And they have paid back all of court fines and other pe- uh, financial penalties related to their conviction. What's your initial spo- response to that framework? I, I would need a little bit of time to think um, about it. I can't give the best. Um, assessment at this time. But I will just say, I think it's important the means by which uh, this kind of law is passed. It would be an amendment to the Constitution, so it would need to pass by um, two-thirds 
of both houses and then go for a vote. I think that restoration immediately is really important and that it's really important that people not be made to this is this has caused extraordinary difficulties in other states when people have to go to another agency to procure documentation and and then go to you know a circuit clerk to provide documentation that is uh, proven in other states to be very unworkable. What I'm really hoping is that that you know the the devil is some of the devil is in the details. Really making it automatic, I think, is the most important thing. They have the capability of doing that. Um, I think that it would be a real uh, missed opportunity to only um, give the right to vote back to people who were uh, convicted of particular crimes. I certainly would hate for the rest of my life to be judged based on my worst moment. Um, and I know that everybody has something that they've done that they are they know is not them. That they know is not the, the, the whole of who they can be. Um, and certainly in a democracy, um, we talk about democracy, we don't talk about um, giving everybody a test of whether they're the best kind of person or even whether they have um, are capable of doing something terrible. You know, we're all, I think many of us believe we're all made of the same stuff. Um, so when people have completed their sentences, particularly, there is no reason to continue to cut them out. Paloma Wu is Deputy Director of Impact Litigation at the Mississippi Center for Justice. Coming up, Mardi Gras celebrations come with hundreds of years of tradition. One new group in New Orleans is showing how those traditions are evolving. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For Moments in Black History, we salute Al Himmler. Born in Tyro, Mississippi in 1915 and blind from birth, Al Himmler achieved national prominence with the Duke Ellington Orchestra in the mid-1940s before selling millions of copies of his recording of Unchained Melody. Al Himmler, who was involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. This has been an MPB moment in black history. MPB Think Radio. Whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Natchez, Jackson, Tupelo, Cleveland. However you want. Radio, smart speaker, smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. It's Mardi Gras season in New Orleans. That means parties, balls, and, of course, parades. It's also a time when the city's cultural history is on display. The Gulf States newsroom's Drew Hawkins tags along with one South Asian group to see how new traditions fit into old celebrations. It's the final dress rehearsal for the Crew de Bangra, a South Asian Mardi Gras dancing group of about 50 people. Inside a community center, the crew is getting ready, preparing costumes and putting on mendi, or traditional Indian henna tattoos. Think Bollywood meets Mardi Gras. They're also crafting handmade throws, which are basically small gifts. Traditionally, these are things like doubloons or beads. But co-founder Monica Don says they're putting their own spin on it. We're giving out things that are traditional and DIY, so bindis, uh, bangles, um, and then, like I mentioned, these cookbooks that we put together that are um, QR codes that have a link to our cookbooks, and then also some colonial facts, which everyone needs to know. (laughs) A crew, spelled K-R-E-W-E, is basically a social club. 
They get together throughout the year to work on costumes, put together parade floats. There are a ton of crews out there, each with their own theme and costumes, from dancing Marie Antoinettes and Princess Leia's to the more traditional groups with the classic Mardi Gras masks. The crew de Bangra was founded last year to, quote, put the masala in Mardi Gras. For Don, a South Asian Mardi Gras crew just made sense. It was a, quite a natural fit. You know, there's lots of bright colors and, you know, people are really excited. It's really, it's very normal in South Asian culture to dance, especially the kind of dance we're doing, which is Pongra. It's a northern Indian traditional dance um, and mixing it with some Bollywood songs, too. Don says there have been South Asians in New Orleans for a long time now. One crew member's family has been here for seven generations. So there was already a community here, um, and this was just kind of a way to bring it all together. Last year, Crew de Bangra marched in the Boheme Parade. It's a fun, artsy parade that's led by a green absinthe fairy. And they were blown away by the response they received. Here's Amitha Krishna. God, last year, the crowd went wild. We loved it. People enjoyed it so much. They enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it. Like, we love dancing down the streets uh, in the French Quarter, and then the audience loved it too. And it was like so, it was just such a beautiful thing. It was such a beautiful moment for a lot of us. Bangra was such a hit that this year, they've been invited to march in three parades. So the crew is really focused on making sure everything looks perfect during rehearsal. They're marching around the community center through a quiet New Orleans neighborhood, practicing their dance moves and occasionally dodging traffic. We want car, car, car. The parade is in just a few days, and there are still a few kinks to work out. So for this one, we're standing still for when we stop like this, and then we turn, and then we're standing still for the chicken. New groups like Crew de Bon Gras really embody the spirit of Mardi Gras. Hundreds of years of tradition, and it's still evolving, changing to reflect the city and the people around it. It's become an incredibly diverse celebration in New Orleans. There's something for everybody. Arthur Hardy is one of the world's foremost Mardi Gras historians. You know, we talk about equity and inclusion and diversity. Well, Mardi Gras supplies all of that every year. And this particularly new South Asian crew is an example of that. And it's just, again, an example of how Mardi Gras belongs to the people. Come parade day, Crew de Bangra is dressed to the nines. We're talking full makeup, gold jewelry, and classic Bollywood-style costumes. As the parade rolls through the streets of the French Quarter, it's clear that all that practice has paid off. The crowd is going wild and dancing right along with them. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Drew Hawkins. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, a gospel documentary airing on MPB shares how Mississippi helped shape the genre. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
Richard Nathaniel Wright, born in 1908 in Roxy, Mississippi, was a voracious reader with a gift for words, though he only completed the ninth grade, from which he graduated as valedictorian. He's best known for the 1940 bestseller Native Son, later made into a stage play, and his 1945 autobiography Black Boy, depicting extreme poverty and racial violence against black people. He was regarded by many writers as their inspiration. This has been a moment in black history from MPB. MPB Think Radio. Whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Natchez, Jackson, Tupelo, Cleveland. However you want. Radio, smart speaker, smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. I'm Scott Tong. There's an alarming spike in measles in Europe, a 3,000% increase over the previous year. It's due to falling vaccination rates, and it's a warning sign about how easily a measles outbreak could spread in this country. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. A new documentary is airing tonight on MPB television that tells the story about how gospel music spread from states like Mississippi across the globe. It's appropriately titled Gospel, hosted by Louis Gates Jr., and airs at 8 p.m. today. The four-hour documentary is split into two parts and covers everything from the inception of gospel music to modern-day legends in the music industry. Our Desiree Frazier speaks with series producer, producer Shayla Harris about the film. We start our exploration of gospel music and black preaching, um, which Professor Gates called the double helix of the black worship experience. start with the Big Bang of gospel in the early part of the 20th century um, during the Great Migration, when a number of migrants moved from the Deep South to industrial centers like Chicago and Detroit and brought their culture, brought their love of blues and jazz, and and brought um, their um, religious expression um, to these places. And, um, you know, we see the amalgamation of all of those things into this new art form called gospel music, um, which initially was not accepted by sort of the mainline churches in Chicago, but eventually had to kind of give way because record sales and sheet music and the popularity of um, this music that was um, sort of created by Thomas A. Dorsey, who was often um, called the godfather of, of gospel, were so popular at, you know, uh, religious conventions and sheet music and his publishing company became incredibly profitable and lucrative. Um, and so we trace the emergence of this music um from, you know, uh, what was considered church music or music that was within um, specifically religious context and how it exploded um, from that and started to reach kind of not just national but international significance um, through records, through radio, um, and eventually through, you know, chart-topping music, uh, chart-topping movies and films and, and TV so we start with the first episode that starts in Chicago, and we trace um, another one of those migrants who moved to Chicago, Mahalia Jackson, 
who um, works with Dorsey to kind of plug his songs. And she eventually um, recorded her own um, seminal hit in the 1940s, Move On Up a Little Higher, um, which at the time sold a record-breaking two million records. And talking about gospel music, was there anything that you learned that you didn't know? And why did you get involved with this project? Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about the origin. So um, I, me and my co-director, um, Stacey Holman, um, also worked with Professor Gates on his Black Church series, um, which came out a few years ago on PBS. And in that series, we explored the institution of the Black Church, um, you know, 400 years and four hours, um, which was a race to try to include all of that stuff. And um, in that exploration, we realized that there were a lot of things that were on the cutting room floor, most notably, um, you know, this cultural expression um, that emerged out of the church, both both gospel music and black preaching. And so, you know, Professor Gates, um, who, you know, once he uh, sets his mind on uh, making something happen, um, helped um, fundraise and, and develop this, this second series, which, you know, we call Black Church the Musical, um, to really kind of unpack um, both of those art forms. What is it about gospel music in your estimation that made it so prolific and continues to make it so special for folks? There is something that's uh, distinctive about gospel that makes it different than, you know, the spirituals or um, traditional religious hymns. And I think it is really this crossing this line between the secular and sacred. Um, gospel um from its beginnings, um, really borrowed, borrowed from popular music forms like blues and jazz, and, and continues to do that even to this day um, with borrowing rhythms from funk and disco and, and hip-hop. And so I think um, because this music um, really uses everything at its disposal um, to reach people in a place that I think maybe they don't expect, there's a certain amount of openness that I think people have to the message. And, you know, gospel, as we know, is good news in bad times. Um, so in addition to the, the rhythms that I think that are appealing to people, I think this message of healing, and most often when you hear gospel, you hear it within a church context, you hear it in a communal context. Um, and there's something about that sense of community, that sense of connection, the universality of the messages um, in terms of faith and hope um, that I think really throughout the generations and throughout the two centuries of gospel's existence, I think, has um, been a large part of its appeal. Were you able to go further back and see where gospel originated from? Well, with Professor Gates, who is an esteemed Harvard scholar, you know, he usually likes to start um, begin at the beginning, as they say. Um, you know, he if he had his druthers, I think he would have started where we often start um, these stories, which is going back to the continent or going back to this encounter um, when African when Africans were brought to this country. And um, because we're working on a documentary, um, for us it was really important to focus on. Um, times and places where we could represent the story, both audio and visually. Um, and when you think about those moments before the 20th century, it's very hard to find archival material that really um, conveys the depth and power 
um, of some of that music. And so for us, we thought it was really important to start the clock um, with this exploration of gospel was when it really um, emerged out of this, the Great Migration in Chicago in the early part of the 20th century and, and, and just look at these two centuries of gospel, um, in particular with how gospel is um, interwoven with the history of Black preaching at that moment, um, where they're both really having a, a massive impact on both the social and political and economic um, fortunes of African Americans. Gospel, the new four-hour docuseries, will air February 12th and the 13th at 8 p.m. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, Shayla Harris. You're one of the producers on this documentary, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for your support. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.